0: Raising Nashville Raising Nashville. Raisin Nashville, raisin Nashville Welcome to Raising Nashville. I'm Bucky.
1: Gah, gah,
0: gah. Juice box. <laughs> that sound must mean that we are back outside because of social distancing. We're keeping our distance from one another. Uh, And you, as we come to you through your ear holes every single Monday. But uh, we are doing our part, so we are out on Juicebox's deck recording this podcast. We've had a nice run this season, and and there's a subject, actually a particular... uh, I I don't know how to explain this. a A particular thing that we've been wanting to cover this entire season. And that is one of the greatest treasures Tennessee has ever known.
1: Taylor Swift.
0: Okay. And since we're going there, I'm going to say yes, in a
1: way. It's the OG Taylor Swift. I was thinking about this while we were researching this podcast. And like, in 30 or 40 years, are people going to look back on Taylor Swift like they look back on this artist that we're talking about today?
0: Uh, I, I, the way the world is moving, yes, I think they will. I think Taylor Swift is going to eventually be, like, an old lady that's known for eventually acting and, you know, potentially some um, uh, some charity work or <laughs> yeah. something she does. I mean,
1: because Taylor Swift has a ton of money, right? And she's already started to do some more fl- philanthropic stuff, so, you know, we'll it, see. And I'm going to be honest, I'd have hated on Taylor Swift for a long time, but... She's got some talent. She's not a total shit bag of a person, it doesn't seem like.
0: No. Uh, if you've seen her recent uh, television commercial, she still wears sweaters every day, so she's not spending money on clothes. Um, I think she's stockpiling that money and probably going after her managers and writes to her songs. And, and the most <laughs> recent thing I heard was she is going to re-record every single song she ever wrote so she can take the money for, from it.
1: Yeah, which I don't exactly understand how that would work because... It feels like publishing rights and stuff would still be with those other songs. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I'm not a lawyer, but that doesn't seem like it would be a loophole or else it feels like every artist out there that doesn't have the rights to their hit song would have just done that, right? Re-record
0: it and just drop a note somewhere. Right. Well, with that and the fact that we've got birds in the air, we uh, kind of want to talk about you know, the original... God, I hate to say it. Not, not yeah, Taylor No, I'm not don't, going to not okay. even do So it. let's go back to one of Tennessee's greatest treasures <laughs> ever, uh, besides the Ryman Auditorium, Uh, You know, there's many things that Tennessee's known for. We've birthed a couple of presidents from, you know, the state of Tennessee. Um, That big pyramid that's in Memphis. The big pyramid, yes. uh, The Parthenon, I I guess, on West End. But we want to go bigger than that, bigger than anything I think Tennessee has ever seen. Where's this metaphor going? Dolly Parton. We've been wanting to cover Dolly Parton for a while because obviously she's a staple from where we live And probably most everywhere, you know, now internationally known. I mean, she's an icon, right? She is. There's a pinball machine after her. They make wigs after her. You know, she has done so much for not only her own community where she came from, the state of Tennessee, but now the world. And it's on this global scale where we couldn't shy away from it anymore. So what we wanted to do was bring to you a two-part episode Uh, on Dolly Parton the first part since we are you know kind of a a multifaceted podcast here the first part is a Nashville story Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to take place this week and the second part uh, is about children because, as most of you parents know, if you are listening to our podcast, your children either received or are currently receiving books from the Imagination Library, which Dolly Parton started in 1990.
1: And if they're not, sign up for that shit. If your kid's under five,
0: yes, uh, the Dollywood Foundation is something that she built back in the late 80s and early 90s. It incorporates, you know, Dollywood theme park. It incorporates the Imagination Library. There are many different charities that they donate to there's all kinds of incredible work that they do and we're going to focus on that next week uh with a actually an incredible special interview from the president and ceo of the dollywood foundation and uh stick around next week for that because that is a major episode in our catalog Uh, i think it will be anyway do we have dolly parton on this episode uh we don't okay we we i'm kind of uh i I would be nervous to reach out oh i
1: I wouldn't even know what to say to her
0: (laughs) me either i would be speechless the whole time as most fans i'm sure probably are that encounter her they probably ask the dumbest questions because when you get to it you just kind of freeze
1: yeah but you know what like i feel like she would be she would make you feel comfortable i feel like because i think it was on that um i don't know if you you guys out there have seen it but there's a documentary on netflix about her and she just she has a line where she says like something about her just makes everybody feel like they know her and that's uh, the absolute truth like she doesn't seem above anybody she seems just like good old gal that will talk to you about anything um would give you like the last dollar in her pocket or the shirt off her back if you know if you were really in need
0: like your aunt or your grandmother like just some somebody who can do no wrong that it depends on what kind of answer grandparents I, I, yeah <laughs> i was like oh, okay <laughs> sorry <laughs> um but today we want to focus on a more nashville related topic in regards to dolly parton so what we did was we want we want to bring to you Something that was kind of uh, lost in time, most people know it. It is the Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton story because it all really took place in Nashville. In 2013, Comedy Central's uh, Drunk History did an episode where one of the three parts was the Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner story. And I watched that a while back and I said, man, that probably should be the focus because in that six-minute segment, Like hilar not only does hilarity ensue, but it kind of gives you this idea of this partnership that ended up very bad. Yeah. And it also reconciled in the end and they became friends, but we want to focus kind of on that dark part. And for uh, most of you that aren't from Nashville, or maybe, you know, your parents were into country and Western music and you knew kind of some of this story. But, you know, back in the 60s, this guy named Porter Wagner had a uh, variety television show, you know, filled with comedy, singing. Uh, I don't know if there was much acting. They would tell stories
1: what you're describing sounds like an early version of Hee Haw or something. Was it something like that? Basically. uh, I guess Hee Haw had dumb sketches. uh, Hee Haw -haw was actually
0: going on at the same time. So it was kind of a competing thing except Hee Haw... Was on kind of a lesser-known network, and the Porter Wagner show was like smack dab on ABC. You well, Porter
1: Wagner show was actually syndicated, so it could have been on in different parts oh, of the uh, U.S. It could have been on different channels. I,
0: I think. didn't think about that, um, but it was big. It happened once a week. For those of you who don't know much about Porter Wagner, I want to run through a little bit of history. Uh, his his rise to fame was fast, swift, and it came really out of nowhere. I think a lot of it had to do with his looks. Because he was a very tall slender gentleman with this beautiful blonde hair and he just kind of stood out anywhere he went mm-hmm. um, for those of you who might remember old pictures of you know people with the rhinestone jackets that you know local to Nashville uh, the artist Manuel created a lot of those there was a company called nudie in California that made they, they were the two specific rhinestone makers hmm. uh, you've seen everybody from Loretta Lynn to Jack White even wear these rhinestones, but Porter Wagner was, like, considered the original rhinestone cowboy, right? He comes, he's got blonde hair, looks like he's from California, he's all cool. He was actually born in 1927 um, to a farmer in Missouri. So, you know, he spent his teenage years and early 20s playing guitar. Uh, singing at local at a local butcher shop and this is a funny thing he actually was the butcher there too um, <laughs> yeah. when he was like a late teenager kind of 19 20 year old and then he would get he would stop cutting meat and go in the corner and play some music
1: so that would be like the equivalent nowadays of like working at a restaurant and then when you get off you jump up and get on the open mic that
0: is what nashville is is <laughs> But in Missouri, uh, where he's from, I'm sure that that was the only shop in town that had live music. At 24 years old, he was invited to perform on a radio segment in Springfield, Illinois. So he would have this weekly thing where they—I guess they found him in a butcher shop. He would sing once a week on this radio show that was in, you know, Springfield. It didn't—it wasn't national; it was just local. And then in 1955, he made his first appearance on TV on something called the ABC Ozark Jubilee. Hmm. And I want to think that that was probably the original Porter Wagner show. Yeah, because it—I looked a little bit into this Ozark Jubilee. Same premise as they all were back then, kind of variety shows. You had singing, you had stories, you had dancing, you had comedy. Uh, it was just something else. You'd listen to the radio or was competing on, you know, against something on TV. In this case, ABC aired this. So he's on there like it would be like on Jimmy Fallon today, right? You have one musical act or one comedy that comes up there and does a five-minute bit. He did that one time on ABC's Ozark Jubilee. And then, you know, six years later, after that one appearance, he was kind of busking around the country. Six years later, he took a member of his band, just one, and moved to Nashville from Missouri. And I had to look this up. I had to fact check this. On Wikipedia, it says he basically walked into Nashville and joined the Grand Old Opry. And I'm just thinking, what? Like, you can just come here and join nobody really knows who you are nobody knew who porter wagner was at this time uh he was just this new fresh face in nashville and wikipedia which isn't the most trustworthy site to find your information but says he just joined the grand old opry
1: yeah that if he had been touring around the country or whatever like even on his own like He had to have built a name for himself or something. There has to be something there that, like, would let him come on, I mean.
0: Well, there was, uh, because five years before the Porter Wagner Show, which this would have been about a year into Nashville, he did have one song in 1955 chart to, like, number three. And until his show five, six years later, he did not have any more hits, but he had a random chart chart to number three. The next three years after he moved to Nashville, he spent writing songs and playing local bars. But he was a good looking blonde that was presentable. And in Nashville, they were basically handing out TV shows and record deals to anybody who acted or looked the part.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a good singer, too. Like, let's not just say he was a sure. good face like he was he was a good artist. He was. So in 1960, the
0: Porter Wagner show was born. Um, it is a variety show of songs, stories and comedy. And that's where the Porter Wagner you know saga until he meets Dolly Parton really ends. Um, we'll go back into his show in a moment. But I think Juicebox has a little bit of history on Dolly Parton for those of you who have been living under a rock or been in jail like your entire <laughs> life. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. As much as you know about Dolly Parton, you still may not know much about her like early life. It um, is true.
0: She was beautiful, by the way. I, I guess still is, but uh, unbelievably gorgeous.
1: Um, yeah, so she was born in an area of Tennessee called Pittman Center, which is... I'm, it's some small town. I looked it up. Um, the population in 2000 was 477 people. So I can't imagine what it was in 1946 <laughs> that she was born. God. They I'm were assu- the only ones there. Yeah, I'm assuming not much bigger. But that, if, for those unfamiliar, I didn't know where it was either. But as you can probably guess, it's right there by Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, right, at, right at the edge of the Smoky sure. Mountains. There. Um, she was the fourth of 12 children. Yep. Which is insane. I think her mom like had. Oh, gosh, I, I didn't write it down, but it was, like, she had 12 kids in, like, 13 or 14 years or something like that, just basically always pregnant. Jesus. Um, her dad was, like, a construction worker, and her mom was, like, with the musical entertainer-type like person in her family, like, singing songs to the kids or whatever. But her big influence seemed to be her uncle, uh, Bill Owens, who, like, helped teach her guitar, I think, like... I can't remember if he either like bought her a guitar or built her, helped her build a guitar when she was like six or seven years old. So like got her on this path of like playing music and stuff like that. And in that documentary um, that I was talking about on Netflix, she even talks about like one of her big things is she would just like kind of go out write these songs during the day as a kid and then come back to her house and like play them for her family like it was just kind of like their own little like talent show
0: which was had to have been their only entertainment because if you've seen anything like that documentary or i saw a video on youtube this morning that house was like a 600 square foot shack with two total rooms and Fourteen people living inside of it. So I'm assuming that they won built that guitar, didn't buy it. Yeah. Well,
1: no. They they, she did whatever her first guitar was. That was like a handmade or built guitar or whatever. I guess handmade is makes it sound more fancy than it really is. It was probably like a box with some strings on it. Yep. So like I said, she was like you know playing her homemade guitar. I think she. You know, I read that she got, like, an actual guitar a little bit later, still before she was 10 or whatever. At 13, she actually records her first single called Puppy Love, and it was on some Louisiana record label or something. I'm not even sure how—I couldn't really find much detail about how that even came about. But prior to that, she had actually performed on the radio and TV in Knoxville when she was, like, 10. So I, I guess, like, you know, that's how she got this record deal or whatever. But point being, like, already at that early age, she was already, like, making a name for herself. I think um, I read that she even performed at the Grand Ole Opry when she was, like, 13 or 14 and met Johnny Cash.
0: Holy cow. And
1: Johnny Cash was, like, you know, thought she was great was, like, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Do it your way because you have a sound. You have something there that's that's special. So, like, the next big thing, I guess, is, like, she graduates from high school from uh, Sevier County High School mm-hmm. in 1964 The very next day, she moves to Nashville, Tennessee. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? She's trying to make it big. Like, she's taking her song. She's taking her guitar. She's just taking it all. I mean, she has, like, I mean, she has a high school education, obviously. But she is a country chick. And, like, a lot of the people that met her early on talk about how rough around the edges she was and how just, like, kind of country she was. But they all, universally across the board, everybody's like, there's something here. This is this is a chick that's going to be something. Sure.
0: You said that was 1964?
1: That was when she graduated, yeah, and moved to Nashville.
0: So in 64, you've got to think. The Porter Wagner Show starts in 1960, right? It is uh, from 60 to 66. It's a black and white television show. This was kind of prior to mainstream color or color in every household. Right. Um, so... The show starts with, you know, Porter Wagner doing a song. Occasionally he would have a guest, but he would have a consistent comedian come on the show named Speck Rhodes. And then he had a female singer, which was big to him. Uh, for his show, he said we always have to have a female presence because that is attractive. That's going to sell. People are going to watch because of that. And that female sing- singer originated as a rising star named Norma Jean. Right. And Norma Jean was like the OG Dolly Parton. Uh-huh. So it. 12 years old, Norma Jean was performing on that Ozark Jubilee show that I was telling you about. Right. Um, she was already a consistent like performer on there. So Porter, Wagner, and Norma Jean meet there when he performs and that one time, and he was like, you know, I'm going to go to Nashville. I'll look you up whenever I get there. So he opens the show in 1960 as Norma Jean comes on. Uh, she's is popular, right? She's like the one that people tune in for. She's got a beautiful voice. She's, you know, a star. And in nineteen sixty six she started making a few hits and she said, I'm gonna leave the Porter Wagner show because she had just gotten married and her new husband was afraid that she wasn't making the money that she could make. Right. It kinda sounded like he was a gold digger when I read the story. So he convinced her to leave this massive show that's you know on T V that you know a couple of million people back then were tuning into this. Yeah. Um so she leaves her kind of sunset just fades after a couple of hits and then kind of goes off into the distance, right? Uh, I think there's one, I can't remember if it was a quote that I looked up or something that said, you know, Dolly Parton basically said, Norma Jean could have had all this, but she took the wrong path. So 1966, Norma Jean leaves. 1966, enter a brand new, I think three, two or three years in Nashville at the time, Dolly Parton.
1: Was that 1966 or 67?
0: Well, in between 66 and 67, Dolly Parton was a guest, so Norma Jean was still on there. At one point, they were on there at the same time, but she was only like once every three weeks or so.
1: Right. Let me Before you get too far, much further into this, let me just jump back a little bit for a second. Sure. Because um, I just want to touch on a couple other things um, about when she first moved to Nashville. Like, you know, she was trying to make it big. Her uncle actually, I think, moved here with her or was in Nashville or something, because they co-wrote several songs that ended up become being on the charts. She didn't sing them. They were, co-wrote them and sold them to other artists. So there was one that I think got to, like, number 25. There was one that got to 17. So she was already doing work as a songwriter, before, you know, from the get-go, hit the ground running. Then she actually got signed by a label called Monument Records, but they wanted to make her, like, a bubblegum pop star. They thought her voice was too. They, it, her voice was unique. They didn't think it was right for country. All she wanted to do was bright and sing country, or you know, perform country. And they were like, "No." They made her put out like a, some kind of pop single. I can't remember what it was called.
0: Couldn't you see that though? Like, I mean, blonde-headed girl, yeah, beautiful no. yeah. in Nashville.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I get it, but it, you know, she just like stuck to her guns and was like, "No, I'm going to do country." And then finally, like. I think they let her record one country song and it got some pop behind it, and then it was like, okay, you know, maybe you are a country artist. Sure. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there because she was already kind of like building up her own little bit of a reputation. She had performed on television multiple times already prior to being on Porter Wagner's show. So she wasn't like just some new rookie. She had already she'd been only been in town for about three years, but she had been working it in the three
0: years. Yeah, she she is definitely a hustler as you can see over her t- entire career. Uh I did read a stat that says she has written over three thousand songs.
1: Yeah, I saw that too.
0: Three thousand songs. I sit down and I'm like, man, I could write a song, a country song, and I get halfway through it. And I'm like, man, this is the corniest thing that anybody's put, you know, to paper.
1: So it probably would have been a hit. It could have been back then, at least. Have you heard current country lyrics?
0: <laughs> All right, so Porter Wagner show is doing great. It's on TV once a week. You know, millions of people are tuning in. Dolly Parton is the new, you know, side piece. Well, that's a bad term to use,
1: but yeah, I would not, I would not say that she's
0: not the female lead, but she is kind of becoming you know, partners with Porter Wagner.
1: So let me let me just jump in here real quick. It kind of seems like Porter Wagner is just riding on the coattails of the, like, talented women that he's bringing in. I'm not trying to take anything away from his talent, but at the same time, his show is popular because of Norma Jean. His show is popular because of Dolly Parton.
0: Well, it, it took a minute to get popular with the Dolly Parton part. Now, Porter Wagner's known for his antics on stage, his the conversations that go back and forth between him and his band members or jokes on each other. Um, he did have a great stage presence and he was smart. So he did bring in young, attractive women who could sing and that were talented. So he wanted, you know, more people to watch because they would recognize his name because his name's on the marquee, right? It's the Porter Wagner show. Sure. So he's going to do anything he can to make that show as popular as possible. So, Basically, there's a big connection going on with Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner. At the same time, she is freshly married, by the way. Uh, We have to mention that because I think she got married at 19, about a year into moving to Nashville, to a guy named Carl. Now, she is still, to this day, married to this guy named Carl. Carl Dean. Carl Dean, since she was uh, not the former mayor and... Uh, runner-up for governor out of two
1: people he was
0: (laughs) runner-up so she's been married for you know over 50 years now and nobody we have to touch on this for a second as people rarely see him have seen pictures of him there's not many things I mean you can obviously google Dolly Parton's husband and find a couple of pictures
1: yeah and not anything from probably the past 30 years really no I mean I can't say not anything but all the pictures that I saw were of him younger Mm. and I feel like Even that documentary, uh, the documentary on Netflix, like, Jane Fonda's on there, and she's talking about how when she cast Dolly in 9 to 5, and, you know, this is something further down the road, but she, like, met Carl Dean, and that was, like, like, stayed at their house, and he cooked them breakfast or something, and that was, like, an anomaly in and of itself, like... That, he, she was, that she saw him.
0: So he is known as a very private person. Um, he never wanted the limelight. He never, you know, dabbled in jealousy. He just, you know, wanted to be married to her, and apparently he's her safe haven when she takes the wig off and takes the rhinestones off and goes home.
1: Yeah, like one of the only people maybe to have seen her in that state ever I also want to throw in real quick that the story is that she met him at a laundromat like day one of Nashville the first day she moved to Nashville she met him
0: love at first sight yeah that or uh, I don't know you're in a new town and you need somebody to pay the bills for a little bit
1: I mean those pictures of him young he looked pretty smooth. I'm not he gonna is, lie. <laughs>
0: he's a very attractive guy. Um, anyway, so Porter Wagner and Dolly hit it off in a artistic sense, in a collaborative sense. Um, they start, you know, writing songs together. They're spending a lot of time with each other. Obviously, she's on the show. This Porter Wagner show also travels and does like a tour, so it's kind of like American Idol to you young kids out there. She's on the road with them. They're writing a lot of songs. They all of a sudden hit on a couple of duets, and then it's you know off to the races. I think you know. They wrote 13 duet albums together. They had 18 like number one singles as duets. They won CMA's uh, Duo of the Year multiple times during those awards. The accolades were going on and on and on, and the show was gaining popularity, and she was one of the driving forces, if not the driving force, behind the Porter Wagner show getting so big. Initially she did sign a five-year contract with this show but stayed seven as most of you out there know the the story of their relationship was rocky Uh, take love out of the equation and they bickered they fought over creative differences you know basically she would write a song and he would say well you got to do it this way and she was like no it's meant to be this way and he was like well it's my damn show and i'm your boss and you have a contract with me so yeah crazy thing is five years Five years goes by and nothing is discussed by by a contract renewal. So basically she just stays on. And then after year seven, you know, they have done all of this. They've accomplished so much. But like any great artistic mind or superstar, you can't be held back. You know what you want and you want to go get it. And Dolly Parton is probably the strongest woman to ever walk the streets of any Tennessee town. And any American town, in, in any probably world town, but at the same time, because you got to think, and this is going to sidetrack for a little bit. You've got a beautiful blonde with well endowed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great way to say it, well endowed. All done up like a doll, you know. Always wears these tight clothes and these rhinestones and everything. Yeah, and she she had to have. Been advanced on in this industry. She had to have been, you know. I can't imagine with the Me Too movement going on now what was happening back then. Right in a man's world in country music,
1: it's it's a tough thing because obviously, like her collaboration with Porter Wagner helped her become who she was. I don't think if she would have collaborated and been on that show, I don't know if she would have. You know, she probably still would have been famous. I don't know if it would have been as famous because obviously he helped her like as a performer, as a songwriter. Like they just like took each other up a notch yeah that being said at the same time watching some of those clips from the show he was so goddamn condescending to her man. Oh, yeah and i'm and i know that's like part of the time you know women just were talked down to or like weren't considered equals but man it is just like the way he introduces her sometimes it's just like here's this pretty little lady gonna sing a song for you it's like she, actually this song that she's about to sing is like a women's anthem and you're like discounting it by like (laughs) yes getting worked up over here no
0: you should get worked up because I mean that's how it was back then and it's sad to think that you know that was the norm but I'm glad you know in the 80s when like you touched on Jane Fonda brought Dolly Parton into the movie nine to five she got to play a role which was the secretary of the main boss in 9 to 5, where she basically got to stand up for all women. Yeah. And that was the first time you saw her on a screen, but not behind the lyrics and behind the song on your radio, but you could actually see her standing up to men. And it was incredible. Yeah. And that became like the the essence of, I'm Dolly Parton, I'm a boss. You're not going to mess with me. I'll do whatever I want. You can try to make advances, but they're not going to work here. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, it's the whole bless your heart sugar type thing. (laughs) Um, So, anyway. Dolly Parton becomes big. Like I said, she stays on the Porter Wagner show for seven years. After seven years, she's had enough. She's like, it's time. My five year contract was up two years ago. I gave you a couple more years. I'm about to roll out. Porter Wagner was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, you, you know, we never renewed our contract. It's still somewhat, he tried to convince her it was still good and that she should stay because he knows that obviously if she rolls out, it's going to be hard to replace yeah. the, one of the biggest stars in the in the country at that time right but anyway the story goes and most of you know this she wrote the song I will always love you which is one of the greatest country songs ever written to Porter Wagner basically saying hey this was cool you know, we did a lot together, but it's my time to roll on. Yeah, uh, I wrote this song. You know, the story goes. He goes, "Okay, well, you can go. That's fine. I won't do anything, but I get to produce that record because he knew that it was going to be one of the bigger songs ever." Yeah. Um. And and they say she sang that in his office.
1: Can we talk about that song for just a second? Absolutely. So he did like his stipulation was, you know, I'll let you out of your contract or whatever, which by that point was possibly void who even knows but he wanted to produce that song and she was like fine but initially elvis wanted to record that song he heard it or something or like i guess he heard a version her version of it or something like that and wanted to record it so she was like holy shit elvis wants to sing one of my songs this is huge but colonel tom parker his manager was like you have to sign over half of the publishing rights to elvis yep and she was like I really want Elvis to sing this song, but this song means too much to me to sign over half of the publishing rights, which was probably one of the smartest moves that she could have ever made.
0: I mean, boss, like straight up boss. You got to think you're a, I mean, you're a somewhat star, but you're not even close to Elvis at that time. If Elvis records your song, it puts you on the map.
1: So I was thinking about that. Also, 1974 Elvis is not the height of Elv- super popular Elvis, right? Because Elvis died four years later fat and bloated. Maybe even three years later fat and bloated.
0: But he was still he was, huge. He was international huge then. He had done movies. He, I mean, this, see, was- this is See,
1: but this is post that um, comeback concert where he was wearing leather and everybody was like, oh, Elvis is back. This is like on the... This is on the downward slope of Elvis. Okay. So, so I agree, it still would be big, but
0: I don't, I mean... Maybe she saw Elvis for who he was and who he was about to not be.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, that that's a very good point, too. I think that she probably did the song more just... I mean, it would have been awesome to hear Elvis in his prime crush this song. Sure. I think she ended up obviously making the right decision, and it takes a lot of balls to say no to Elvis. <laughs>
0: yeah. So she leaves the Porter-Wagner show and becomes a star automatically, right? I mean, she's just... Solo, she's putting out records, she's, you know, trying to, you know, basically do all the things that Porter Wagner said that she couldn't do on his show, and she's just testing the waters all around.
1: In the following six years after she left, she had eight number one singles. Eight. I mean, in six years, that's not bad. So it, it didn't it didn't continue its success. He's on his way down,
0: she's on her way up. So all of a sudden Porter thinks, hey man, I'm losing all this money. Apparently he had a bunch of uh you know back. Uh, owed money to the IRS and stuff so he decides to sue Dolly Parton for $3 million on March 21st, 1979 out of nowhere Huh? like she knew that they had some creative differences they bickered all the time but she still assumed that they loved each other and that he wouldn't come after her for any amount of money more or less $3 million in 1979 which is a lot of money. Yeah. At that time she did not even have a million dollars and he's suing her for three million. Oh wow! Uh, for what he considered breach of contract. Now, none of that would have ever hold held up. But the settlement that he, you know, wanted to get to included money, rights to songs, uh, and this is the craziest part: a new album. So basically, he goes into this saying three million dollars. She says no, and he comes back and he says okay. How about we settle for a little bit of money? I want the rights to all of our songs that we did together, and I want a brand new album uh, to drop, and then all of this is done. She was like, okay. Then he comes back and says, wait a minute, because that was too easy, right? Then he wanted 15% of net income from Dolly Parton from 1974 to 1979, and he also wanted 15% of anything that she ever made in the future because he Put her on the map or discovered her, so it's like a founder's fee, huh. Um, which is crazy. So, anyway, they settled two million dollars. Uh, she gave him the rights to all their songs because she didn't care, she knew that she was the star and she's going to write plenty of more songs. We told you 3,000, yeah. I'm sure that was what a hundred. And then she did the new album with it's called Porter and Dolly, and it was released in 1980. And Here's a crazy thing behind that album. They were all remasters of previous songs they recorded, and even the cover of the album. It's a black album with a you know rhinestones. Both of them are decked out in rhinestones, you know, holding on to each other. They photoshopped. It's like one of the earliest you know versions of Photoshop. Both of them on the album to look like they were in the same room because they couldn't stand each other. Right. And they never met for that album on any creative aspect whatsoever.
1: So. What you're saying is they didn't even really record an album. They just took their old recordings and just polished them up a little bit. But it helped him make some
0: money, I guess. So uh, it's funny. God. Another quote is they settled for $2 million. A quote from Dolly Parton is, it took me a while to pay it off, but he got the first million dollars I ever made isn't that insane yeah like talking about clipping somebody's wings and not allowing them to fly I mean obviously we all know the story she flew she's flown yeah
1: it's but you needed to take advantage of her because you were too bad at running your own career like honestly it
0: it is true the craziest part of this story is she just said okay because she loved him and she did not want you know any animosity she just wanted to get it over with
1: yeah and And, she and I mean, she had to have felt like she did owe him something to some extent, or something, you know. Like sure. there had to have been something there.
0: Well, he's he's he kind of sounded like a sleaze ball the way he came after it, though. You know, he just kind of disappeared, let her do her own thing, become popular, and he ran out of money, and basically said, "All right, I'm gonna sue Dolly Parton, I
1: guess." Yeah, he sounds like a total sleaze bag.
0: Um, there's an interview in 1980 you can find on YouTube. With he's sitting on the couch, he's his hair's not done up, he's wearing a trucker's hat, it's all scraggly, non-shaven, and he's. You know, talking about how she screwed him over, and it looks like he's drunk in this interview. Probably is. They did reconcile their differences in the late '80s. Uh, again, Dolly had that other show on called Dolly. Uh, she he came on the show. He did. He did come on that show um, okay. as a special guest. So about 1988, they reconciled their differences, and then they didn't talk for a while. Right? He goes back to Nashville. He goes back to the Grand Ole Opry. He's still considered Mister Grand Ole Opry, right? He's he was consistently on that show on a week weekly basis. Uh, he was recording albums, you know, late into the 90s. Uh, crazy thing is I looked at some of his later career. Uh, he acted in a Clint Eastwood movie called The Honky Tonk Man. He was punked by Ali G on second season of The Ali G Show. And
1: really? yeah. I, well, Huh.
0: And guess what? He he actually passed in 2007, and most people know that story where Dolly showed up two hours before he actually passed and sang "I will always love you" to him. But early, and that was in October earlier that year. I think it was uh, June or July in 2007. He opened. For a sold-out Madison Square Garden show, he opened for the White Stripes. They requested that he be the opening band, and it was like the largest crowd he had ever played before, ever. Dolly Parton, obviously, we know goes on to become big. I Will Always Love You is redubbed in 1990 for the movie The Bodyguard by Whitney Houston. Yeah. In the 90s alone, Dolly Parton made $10 million off Whitney Houston for re-recording that song. Since then, it has gone on to make like $100 million. You know, obviously inflation and money just continues to rise. Yeah. But she's made like almost $100 million from that song alone, thanks in part by Whitney Houston recording it and making it so big. And you got to think, Porter Wagner probably made some money off that too, right? I mean, if he produced I Will Always Love You and she agreed to let him do that?
1: Uh, See, I don't know. I don't know if he would have made money off Whitney Houston's version, just because I feel like Dolly Parton probably owned like the song, like the songwriting rights or whatever.
0: When he died in 2007, he was estimated to be worth five million dollars. Uh, Dolly Parton is currently worth 500 million dollars. <laughs> Another fun fact I found that uh, since we're talking all things Dolly is that night she wrote "I Will Always Love You" to you know break her ties with the Porter Wagner Show. Uh, she was sitting by a fire in her house in Antioch, Tennessee, by herself. And she also wrote Jolene in the same hour writing span that she wrote I Will Always Love You. Which is insane. The two biggest hits she's ever had. I mean, besides Nine to Five and, you know, a couple of other duets with Kenny Rogers and, you know, things like that. But I Will Always Love You and Jolene, the two biggest things that I know her from that most everybody knows her from
1: yeah i mean i know nine to five was a super pop hit like that was one of the first records i remember listening to when i was a kid my mom had the 45 of it um i know that was a big pop hit but i almost feel like jolene is even more popular than that
0: yeah no i mean because it's been re-recorded by so many artists
1: so many people and also that was even kind of like I mean I, it's still technically a country song i guess but that was also kind of like her first jump into that like pop charts or basically you know it, it had more appeal than just a country song because it had that kind of like little driving like baseline and stuff it was it wasn't a your typical country song so it was like the beginning of her breaking out of that country country role
0: yep yeah. and she's gone on again to write three thousand songs so she hit on one night pretty big um that's probably carried her career a lot she's you know gone on to do like we said movies 9 to 5 Best Little Whorehouse Whorehouse in Texas uh, with Burt Reynolds have you ever seen that movie
1: Um, I feel like I watched part of it once when I was younger and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be so I stopped watching it
0: That's exactly it. So Dolly Parton kind of dies off for a little bit, then comes back. She's just like a roller coaster, right? She comes out with stuff. She, you know, kind of disappears for a little bit.
1: She's just like the queen of like kind of reinventing herself, you know, like, but not getting too far away from what Dolly Parton is. But yeah, like, you know, you said she made $10 million in the 90s or whatever off that song. That's good because the 90s were not kind to her, like music wise. Like, no. her, her music career was actually kind of struggling during during the 90s. And I think it was even like, was it like the late 90s or maybe even early 2000s where like people were like, hey, Dolly, you know, there was like a petition or something and people were like, hey, Dolly Parton should record a Bluegrass album. And, and tons of people signed it or voted for it or something, you know, what change.org type thing, whatever it was back yep. then. Yep. Um, and then she recorded The Grass is Blue. The Grass is Blue. Which. Was popular. I think that and was 99. Brought, yeah. And like brought her back to the charts and like brought her back to like more like music relevance.
0: I know she changed managers in the early 2000s. I want to say maybe 2002 or 2004. And the new manager kind of put her on the map, uh, got her, you know, playing arenas again. And I think things she, like that.
1: yeah. I think she was like her own manager for a little while there for like 10 or 15 years. Like that maybe during the 90s. And that's kind of like why things weren't, you know.
0: Thought she could do it all herself
1: which she has
0: (laughs) let's be honest there's so much things that we could talk about dolly parton i mean everybody knows you know all kinds of stories from her different you know faceted careers to um, what we're going to cover next week which is her philanthropic work and we we've got a big episode for you next week again we're interviewing david Dotson, who is the current ceo of the imagination library and the dolly parton foundation Um, that interview was awesome Uh, we can't wait to bring it to you guys to kind of Give that side of Dolly. You know, we all know the popular side, what, you know, her songs, her movies, her, you know, career. But we also want to bring to light in this two-part series what she has done for her community, the community of Tennessee, our country, and now the world. Because the Imagination Library books are going to seven different countries. You know, they're they're averaging, I, I, what was it? It was like 17 or 18 million books a year.
1: Yeah, something like that. Uh,
0: that they're sending out for free to kids, which is an incredible story uh, highlighted by an upcoming film on December 9th called The Library That Dolly Built. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into that a little bit, kind of give you a preview
1: of that. You know, I don't, Dolly Parton is one of those people, and maybe I shouldn't even say this. But it's it's kind of like Mr. Rogers. You know, it's okay. like somebody that has like been around your whole entire lifetime. I mean, obviously Mr. Rogers is passed now, but basically been around your whole entire lifetime has never really had a huge scandal, has always seemed to do everything right, has always seemed to treat people with respect, like yep. you're almost just like waiting for <laughs> like I'm waiting for that story, you know. But oh, I, I don't No, no well that's I'm saying that skeptical. I don't think that's going to come. You know, I, we obviously didn't get that with Mister Rogers, unless there's some weird thing coming out, you know, years from now. But I just I feel like there's not. Yeah, I'm, I'm knocking knocking on knocking wood, on wood Knock out on here. Wood. I feel like the same thing with Dolly Parton. Like, there are still good people in the world, as fucked up as everything is, and as weird, you know, as shitty and self centered as people seem nowadays. There are still good people out there, and we should like actually look to them for guidance and like maybe try to emulate them a little bit more
0: and she's used her platform as you know an avenue to make these things happen because most people know the story that dolly that's not her hair um you know nobody's ever seen her in her natural space other than her husband which we also have never seen yeah um, and she keeps her private life private and she keeps her public life public and her public life is to use to do all of these incredible things which we will highlight next week uh, I want to touch a little bit before we get out of here on Juicebox saying that Dolly Parton finds a way of reinventing herself yeah um, if you didn't know she's got a lot of things coming up uh, this year alone um, a book called Dolly Parton Songteller: my life and lyrics Uh, She's got an album, A Holly Dolly Christmas, that's coming out this Christmas. Uh, On Netflix, she's got Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square musical that's about to drop. Um, She's got a documentary coming out on December 9th called The Library That Dolly Built, which we'll touch on next week. And uh, apparently she is funding COVID uh, trials. And she... I read this. I hate that I read it because we were like, Dolly Parton's spent a million dollars funding COVID trials. And we're like, this is great. And then I saw the article that said she found out at the same time we all did that she was donating a million dollars to COVID research.
1: It's just part of her found. Yeah, you're right. The foundation did that. Yeah, she puts her money into the foundation and the foundation finds the the right places to put it. But still.
0: And that's what we're going to touch on next week because David Dotson, the CEO of the Imagination Library and the um, Dollywood Foundation, uh, he's going to answer some questions about that for us because they do. Un, you're talking about the man behind the man, or the the people behind the woman. They really are the cast behind Dolly Parton, uh, and they've
1: built that up from what what do you say? It's like three people to like hundreds of people now yeah, or for him.
0: Yeah, it, I think that initial budget when he came in 21 years ago was, uh, what, $100,000, $200,000, and now it's about $25 million. Is their budget? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely insane. Um, well, we hope you enjoyed this episode on the Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner story. I had a lot of fun researching this. Uh, feel free to go out there. The problem is you can't find a lot on the bad parts of the Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton story because they don't want you to know it. Yeah. So... Um, which is great because normally when you're in a feud all of that gets out there right on both sides
1: yeah well it was a different time you know it's pre-internet
0: so absolutely Um, well we will be back here next Monday with part two of the Dolly story and uh, as always wherever you're listening feel free to go in there like us rate us tell your friends uh, get more people listening check out our socials what else do I say
1: Um, can we say mask up
0: mask up uh if you need to buy a home, JustinFloydhomes.com is the best place to go here in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you are starting to become uh a little Uh, down or depressed that it's probably not the best idea to visit your family for thanksgiving Uh, we don't know what christmas is going to hold but it is coming up and are
1: are you talking to me specifically because this is already starting to hit home
0: i'm talking to our listenership out there but you and myself as well if you are feeling the woes of having to make a turkey and only eat a sixth of it this year because you're making it at home Um, you know, you want to, you still want to celebrate Thanksgiving, but you have to do it with your family. You can't do it with your extended family, um, because it's not safe to go out and gather in a lot of people. We need one more push through all this, but if you are down, we do have something for you. And it is in the form of three little letters called CBD. Oh, those are not the three letters I thought you were going to say. I apologize if I let you down. But (laughs) the three letters that I'm focusing on is CBD because I do take some in my morning coffee in the morning. I might inject some in a turkey this year because our entire family might need it um, to get through the Macy's Day Parade without grandma and grandpa there.
1: So that's interesting because... CBD makes you relax, kind of gives you a nice little body buzz. Yep. Turkey already makes you sleepy when you eat it. Very true. Are we going to put people in like a full-on coma with this uh, suggestion? I think so, maybe we'll wake up and COVID'll be over. Let me just uh sidebar here too. I was talking to one of my buddies recently. They said they gave their dog some CBD and it laid on the floor and stared at its paws for 4 hours straight. Kind of like kind of like I, a acid trip, I think. I think that was weed. So, uh I'm not saying you should do that, but you know, it's a thing. Yeah.
0: Mix a little bit. T- put a couple drops in your sweet potatoes um, and enjoy. Try to enjoy this Thanksgiving holiday. We will get through this and we will be back here every single Monday. Uh, we will see you next week for Dolly Part 2. We're very excited to bring that episode to you. Enjoy your week.
1: Put on your mask.
0: Happy Thanksgiving. To
1: Tell yours and I'll tell mine Well, where were you
0: last night When I came home When I came in You were out and gone Well, me and the boys
1: stopped off for a drink or two Now ain't you a pretty thing Well, we got to drinking and I guess the time just flew Well, the time must have
0: flown for you all right Cause I thought you were gonna stay out all night And I told myself I ain't a putting up with that
1: There's always two sides to every story We can straighten this out if we'll take time